And just as David comes to us, we'll just read the passage that he'll be speaking from, which comes from Philippians chapter 3, and it's verses 7 to 11. And the verses read, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. I suppose I'll wait till I get to the microphone, but I suppose what I want to really do is, is look really at the, the heart that lies behind that fantastic statement and what lies behind uh, an evening like tonight and a, a declaration of faith like we've, we've shared. So I'm going to just ask you to come and pray. Let's just pray together. Father, we praise you again tonight for all that you've done in Sarah and Doogie's life and for what you want to do in each of our lives. We pray that you'll help us just to, to be open to hear what you're saying. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of us have got certain things we're afraid of in life. I'm sure that's true. For me, it's most definitely heights, though I have to confess that I'm also not all that keen on little furry creatures. Dogs I love, no matter what size they are. Cats I can tolerate. But things like rats and mice and the like that scurry around, they're just not... For me, and one notable occasion in a previous church with two ladies who regularly cleaned the church, I was with them, and we found a mouse in the kitchen that had been caught in a trap. That was bad. Then it moved. <laughs> that was the fastest I ever saw those two ladies move in eight years. Now, I would love to say that I was a, an example of implacable male courage in the face of such an enemy, but sadly, I wasn't that far behind them. And then in came my wife, Elaine, alerted by sounds of high-pitched squealing coming from me, me, not from the mouse. And instantly, she sized the situation up. We, Jimmy, was dying and in pain. Within a minute, helped by a pair of rubber gloves and an expertly wielded glass HP bottle, he was in the bin. <laughs> That's had a lasting effect on me. Every time I see my wife with an HP bottle, I flinch. <laughs> then more seriously than that, I read the story a while ago of an incident in Leningrad, now again St. Petersburg, during the height of the Russian communist regime. And it was rush hour and the bus was packed. Two men were squashed up tight together when one turned to the other and whispered in his ear, Excuse me, do you work for the KGB? 
No. Does your wife work for the KGB? No. Do any of your close relatives or friends work for the KGB? No, said the man again, by now getting exasperated. I do apologize for this, persisted the other man, coughing politely. But could you possibly tell me if you know anyone who has ever worked for the KGB? For the last time, said the man under interrogation, I have no connection whatsoever for the KGB. Well, that being the case, came the reply, could you budge up a bit? You're standing right in my foot. That it's maybe not something that's at KGB level, but both Doogie and Sarah found it a bit um, find it a bit scary being up front tonight in front of everyone here. And, and that got me thinking as I thought about that. It got me thinking, though, you know, Sarah is a shy girl, so why then did she ever decide to play the cello? I mean, it's not exactly an unobtrusive instrument. But then I figured it out. It was because when she was a little girl, she could hide behind it. But both Doogie and Sarah, though, in, in one way or another, would, would rather be anywhere and doing anything rather than being here tonight doing what they are doing. What this underlines, though, is that what they're doing tonight, they're doing for one reason only. They're doing this because of their faith in Jesus Christ. They're doing it because of their love for him. They're doing it because they want to please him, because they want to glorify him. So in among all my other feelings tonight, there's joy. There is joy. In among all their feelings tonight, there is joy. And my prayer is, it, is that it's this joy that will become dominant in their experience going forward and in their memories. But you know, they're not the only ones experiencing joy. For I believe that God is overjoyed by what's taking place here. As two of his children here, in love and obedience, declare their love for him. How I pray that, that they might sense something of God's pleasure. That this might be for them one of the truly special nights in their life. But we ask, but, but what tonight are they saying? By being baptized. Of course, they're declaring their faith. They're making a stand for that faith. But what is that faith essentially all about? And what can they expect that faith to lead to? What can they expect that faith to bring into their life? Well, let's begin here by looking first of all at who they follow. And of course, the one that they follow is Jesus Christ. Their faith is in him. What they're saying is that they believe that the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who created us as men and women, that this God, when we sinned, when we turned our back on him, when we refused to live our lives guided by him, led by him, well, although that sin then left us condemned facing death and judgment, yet such is God's love for us that this God in Christ, in the person of his Son, became a man. This God, he left the glory of heaven and he came to this dark and sinful world because he knew that this was the only way that he could rescue us from our sin and its consequences. And so on the cross, in Christ, there God paid the price of the sin that his holiness he could not bear. 
There on that cross is God. He gave his sinless life for us. There as a man, he hung and he died in our place. There he took the punishment that was ours. But not only that, he rose again from the dead. He defeated death and sin and all the powers of evil. Now you might be sitting there right now thinking, but how can anybody sane and intelligent ever believe all this? How can they believe that there is a God? How can they believe in the Bible that it is God's word? How can they believe that God became a man and died for us? And more than that, that this man then rose from the grave. Well, let me give you an example of a sane and intelligent man who believes this. Francis S. Collins, a medical doctor with an additional doctorate in chemistry, who was appointed by President Clinton to head the Human Genome Project, which successfully decoded the three billion genes of human DNA. In his life, he's also helped discover the different genetic anomalies that lead to cystic fibrosis, neurofibromitis, and Huntingdon's disease. I'm really pleased for getting them right. For much of his early life, though, Collins was an atheist. And looking at Jesus in his own words as a myth, a fairy tale, a superhero in a just-so bedtime story. But then the faith of some of his own desperately ill patients prompted him to begin to explore spiritual issues. Eventually, it was the universal existence of right and wrong, the inbuilt awareness we have that there is right and wrong, the moral law that led him to believe in an infinitely holy and good God, and which, in turn, brought him face to face with his own failings, his selfishness and pride. Fundamentally, his sin. He then turned to research the historical basis for Christianity. This man, among the most gifted researchers in the world, actually looked to the evidence that for many years, in common with the vast majority of our society, he'd written off as untenable. And he was amazed at the evidence there is that the Bible is by far and away the most accurate of any historical document we have that the four gospels were undoubtedly written within decades of Jesus' death that they were clearly rooted in the testimony of eyewitnesses who had nothing to gain from telling lies and that the only convincing verdict on the resurrection was that it had actually happened. All other possible explanations, like the disciples stole the body, the Romans stole it, the Jews stole it, make far, far less sense than the incredible truth that actually Jesus did rise from the dead. If you see, if the disciples stole the body, why would they then be willing to be persecuted to the point of death for something that they knew to be a lie? And if the Romans or Jews had stolen the body as some kind of final insult they wanted to heap on Christ, well, why, when this backfired on them, when this led Christians to believe that Jesus was the Son of God who had risen from the dead, why 
wouldn't they at that point just have produced the body and so stopped this new movement that was such an irritant to them dead in its tracks? But then Collins turned to the, the super, supernatural dimension of Christian faith. Could a rational scientist believe in such nonsense? This, he conceded, was difficult stuff. In the end, though, he had a life-transforming change of mindset. When he realized that if Jesus Christ truly was who he claimed to be, the Son of God, then surely of all those who'd ever walked the face of the earth, he could suspend the laws of nature if he needed to do so to achieve an important purpose. Let me just share with you in his own words his account of his personal journey. My desire to draw close to God was blocked by my own pride and sinfulness, which in turn was an inevitable consequence of my desire to be in control. But the crucifixion and resurrection emerged as the compelling solution to the gap that yawned between God and myself, a gap that could now be bridged by the person of Jesus Christ. So Francis Collins decided to follow Jesus. And Doogie and Sarah, by being baptized tonight, are also declaring to all of us here that Jesus is the one who they believe in, who they follow also. And I firmly believe that there is no better, no saner decision that any woman or any man could ever make. That's who they follow. Let's move on from that to look at, at what this brings. Well, you see, if we get it right, as we should get it right, if we then live with Jesus Christ at the center of our lives, with our lives focused on him, with pleasing Jesus, living a life that honors him, being our first priority, then there is no greater life than the Christian life. In terms of the sense of joy, of fulfillment, of a sense of purpose, there is nothing, there is no other lifestyle in this world that comes even close to the Christian life. Now, not all Christians, sadly it has to be said, not all Christians know this kind of quality of Christian life. Because, you see, although we believe Jesus is Lord, yet we don't always go on to live with him as Lord. We don't always choose to live with him as our first priority. We don't always live with him at the center of our life. Our driving purpose in life isn't always to live to please him, to live to glorify him. In fact, some Christians at times seem to believe that the Christian life consists of them making a kind of faith statement about God. And then from that point on, the Christian life is really about them just getting on and living their lives largely as they want. With God's job being to make them happy, to pour his blessing, to make that life they want to live as easy as possible. I want to say to you, it's not like that. Happiness doesn't come from God in the sense of being some kind of add-on. No, the most meaningful and deepest pleasure and joy is found in God as we're living in him and living for him. Play around Christianity does not satisfy. 
Jesus and faith in him as a kind of bolt onto your life does not satisfy. It doesn't cut it. It's only as our lives are truly focused on God, it's only as he is our first priority that everything else falls in together. And we know life's deepest joy, life's deepest pleasure <clears throat> that is found only in the Lord. Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord. That is, make God your focus, make God your priority. And then it goes on, and he will give you the desires of your heart. For you see, when he is your focus, then your desires will be the right desires, and he will bless you. And he'll bless you in abundance. What we're, we're talking about here really is living the kind of Christian life that's expressed so beautifully in Psalm 42, verse 1 and 2. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. You see, that's true Christian living. That is what should be the normal Christian life. Sadly, it's not so much the norm today. Rather, too often in Christianity, what we can find is a kind of flabby, self-centered faith. A faith where God is acknowledged, yes, he is, where there's faith in Jesus, undoubtedly there is, but where the focus is more on the believer's well-being than on the Lord's glory. Now, I tell you again, that faith will not satisfy the individual, nor, I believe, will it attract those who see it lived out. But here, in this fellowship, my prayer is that more and more our desire will be to live that true Christian life. And certainly, I believe that their commitment to seek to live that life, their desire to live that life, is in part what Sarah and Doogie are bearing witness to by being baptized tonight. Well, we've looked at who they follow. We've looked at what this brings. Let's just finish briefly by looking at what this means. That is, what can we expect our life experience to be as we live our life like this, as we live this kind of Christian life? So, so let me tell you then, say it again. We can expect a life where we will know a sense of purpose and direction in life that is like no other. We can expect a life where in our life we will know great joy. We can expect a life where we'll feel an unparalleled sense of fulfillment and satisfaction. We'll know that life. It's a rich life. It's a wonderful life. But what we cannot expect is an easy life. What we cannot expect is a trouble-free life. Now sometimes, I'll be honest, the Christian life sometimes is a hard life. It's not easy. We go through the same trials as everyone else. And sometimes it's hard. And you need to work. You need to work at it to keep your focus and to retain your joy. God gives us everything we need to do it in his word and in the spirit. But we need to determine to work, to grab hold and to use the resources He's given us. So you see, I never say to anyone, come to Jesus and all your problems will disappear. I never say, come to Jesus and you'll enjoy a happy, trouble-free life. 
I never say that. I never will say it. Because it's not what God's word says. It's not what Jesus promises. How could it be? Knowing that we live in a sinful, broken world, whereas the followers of Christ, we're really Satan's frontline opposition. And we will be until Jesus returned. Jesus never experienced a peaceful, trouble-free life. And he never promised that life to his disciples. No, what Jesus promised was that he would be with them and he would give them his peace and his joy as they turned to him in the midst of whatever trouble they went through. Listen to what he says in his famous farewell speech to his disciples in John's Gospel in verse uh, John 14, 27. He said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. In fact, I want to say to you that, that it's as Christians are willing to suffer for Jesus. It's as they live focused on Jesus and knowing his joy in the midst of suffering and sadness and pain and feeling that but still holding on to him, still with that spark of joy remaining in him. It's this that's one of the things that speaks most powerfully to people who aren't yet Christians. You know, my eyes woke to something a while ago that I, it took me a long time to, to really register. And that is that the, one of the factors that relates to the timing of the second coming of Jesus Christ when he will return again is that this will not happen until there is the full number of martyrs for Christ. Revelation 6, 10 and 11. How long, sovereign Lord? They were told to wait a little longer until the numbers of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. Now you see, I don't believe this is because God is some kind of bloodthirsty, bloodthirsty sadist because that's not the image the Bible presents to us of God. Now I believe this is tied up with mission and evangelism. It's because there is no more powerful and effective witness to God in this world, than his people living through hardship, going through suffering, and yet continue to live fully focused on him. Here's a, a powerful example that I found of what I'm talking about here. It's found in the autobiography of a man called Sergei Kordakov. I hope I've got it right. And the book's called The Persecutor. Now, this is a man who was commissioned by the, the Russian secret police to raid prayer gatherings and to persecute believers with extraordinary brutality. But the afflictions of one believer changed his life. Now here's his story. I saw Victor Matyev reach and grab for a young girl, later identified as Natasha Zadnova, who was trying to escape to another room. She was a beautiful young girl. What a waste to be a believer. Victor caught her, picked her above his head and held her high in the air for a second. She was pleading, don't, please don't, dear God, help us. Victor threw her so hard she hit the wall at the same height she was thrown, then dropped to the floor, semi-conscious, moaning. Victor turned and laughed and exclaimed, I'll bet the idea of God went flying right out of your head. On a later visit, a later raid, sorry, Sergei was shocked to see Natasha again. I quickly surveyed the room and saw a sight I couldn't believe. 
There she was, the same girl. It couldn't be, but it was. Only three nights before, she'd been at the other meeting and had been viciously thrown against the room by Victor. It was the first time I really got a good look at her. She was more beautiful than I first remembered, a very beautiful girl with long, flowing blonde hair, large blue eyes, and a smooth skin, one of the most naturally beautiful girls I've ever seen. I picked her up and flung her on a table face down. Two of us stripped her clothes off. One of my men held her down, and I began to beat her again and again. My hands began to sting under the blows. Her skin started to blister. I continued to beat her until pieces of bloody flesh came off on my hand. She fought desperately not to cry. To suppress her cries, she bit her lower lip until it was bitten through and blood ran down her chin. At last, she gave in and began sobbing. When I was so exhausted, I couldn't raise my arm for one more blow. I, 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 one more blow, and her back was a mass of raw flesh. I pushed her off the table, and she collapsed onto the floor. But to Sergei's shock and amazement, he later encountered her at yet another prayer meeting. This time, though, something was different. There she was again, Natasha Zadnova. Several of the other guys saw her too. Viktor Gulaev moved towards Natasha, hatred filling his face, his club raised above his hand. Then something I never expected to see suddenly happened. Without warning, Viktor jumped between Natasha and Alex, facing Alex head on. Get out of my way, Alex shouted angrily. Victor's feet didn't move. He raised his club and said menacingly, Alex, I'm telling you, don't touch her. No one touches her. I listened in amazement. Incredibly, one of my most brutal men was protecting one of the believers. Get back, he shouted to Alex. Get back or I'll let you have it. He shielded Natasha, who was cowering on the floor. Angered, Alex shouted, you want her for yourself, don't you? No, Victor shouted back. She has something we don't have. Nobody touches her. Nobody. For one of the first times in my life, I was deeply moved. Natasha did have something. She'd been beaten horribly. She'd been warned and threatened. She'd gone through unbelievable suffering. But here she was again. Even Victor had been moved and recognized it. She had something we didn't have. I wanted to run after her and ask, what is it? I wanted to talk to her, but she was gone. This heroic Christian girl who had suffered so much at our hands somehow touched and troubled me very much. Later, the Lord touched Sergei's heart also. To the glorious good news of Jesus. And he later reflected on Natasha, who he never saw again, and this is what he wrote. And finally, to Natasha, whom I beat terribly, and who was willing to be beaten a third time for her faith. I want to say to you, Natasha, largely because of you, my life is now changed, and I am a fellow believer in Christ with you. I have a new life 
before me. God has forgiven me. I hope you can also. Thank you, Natasha, wherever you are. I will never, never forget you. You see, that was the example, the power of true Christian faith. Tonight, this baptism, in its own way, has also been a witness to true Christian faith. And perhaps tonight, as Sergei realized that she had something that he didn't have, maybe you've begun to realize that they have something you don't have as well. I want to tell you tonight that it doesn't have to stay that way. Because what God is calling you to do tonight is to respond to him, to come to faith in him, and to take hold by faith tonight of the new life that he offers you as well through Jesus. You see, real joy, real peace, real purpose, and so much more, these God offers to you. These are God's gift to you in Jesus Christ. Can you turn your back on that? I pray you cannot. I pray that by faith tonight, you will take hold of God's gift in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for what we've shared in tonight, for what we've seen in the life of Sarah and Doogie, for what we've maybe seen in the life of others who we know and love.